Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I am Ben Wager with my co-host Don Gibson. Hey there. And today we are having a little bit of a different episode. We're going to look at some contemporary award-winning uh, films from the uh, that have been made in the last year that qualified for uh, this award season. And since we just had the Golden Globes, we are looking at a couple of films that were in the uh, nomination circuit of the Golden Globes, but uh, neither one of these films won Best Picture. Well, as we look at the Golden Globes and and the Oscars, we're going to talk a little bit. We're going to start off by talking a little bit about the understanding of their selection process and maybe getting a little bit of an understanding about their voting because they did have a very interesting article come out in the New York Times not too long ago about this. And Don, the LA Times. I'm sorry, the LA Times, not the New York Times. And Don is going to open by talking a little bit about uh, his understandings of this process. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the frustrations people in the industry are feeling about this process. So Don? Well, I mean, the interesting thing is like, you know, so we've been, our whole show, we've always talked about nominated films. And of course the understanding is a nominated film is a very well-made film. And I'm, we're definitely, I'm definitely not disputing that, but there's definitely something that we're thinking about is how this process works. And, you know, the Golden Globes, like the Oscars, is a group of people that got together that thought, how can we, you know, create some sort of buzz around what we do? We create awards and then, you know, it's a, it's a thing that raises money for their organization and, you know, it builds, et cetera. And, you know, obviously the Oscars are, are the, the, the best at it or the most, uh, you know, um, prestigious. High, prestigious and high profile. And they figured out the whole red carpet and the, gold, the golden statuettes and the, you know, that, you know, they have a massive television audience. And I'd say only in the last 15, 20 years, the Golden Globes, before everyone knew about them, but it was never really televised and it wasn't that hype. But then they got Ricky Gervais involved and, and then Tina Fey. And, and anyway, so it's turned into a thing and it's, you know, and, and they're, they're definitely recognizing talent. But the thing that came up very clearly this year, so they, and the, the funny thing is they don't even know the exact number of how many people are in, it's the Hollywood foreign press. So what that means is the, members of the press corps in Hollywood that aren't American, that vote on these films. But there's not a list of them. There's not an official list that's released. And the Times finally did a little bit of investigation. And they found out there was not a single Black member of this entire group of 90 people. So, you know, and so I'm sure people saw the show. They made a thing about it. And they, members of the, of the committee came out and said, this is something that we're going to pay attention to, et cetera. I mean, talk about, you know, not thinking about things and realizing they're going to get busted. It was kind of sad and pathetic the way it was revealed. But when you think about it, the Golden Globes, where everyone says, did you win the Golden Globe? It's based on 90 people's uh, decisions. So as much as it does represent talent and, you know, uh, skill, you know, it's also, it's a limited number of people that are, that are making the selections. We have always have to keep that in mind. And, you know, I, I do, I, there seems to always be, some controversy in the Golden Globes. There's been rumors and accusations that, you know, you can buy your Golden Globes and that they're, uh, you know, that those, since there's such a small voting pool, it's, it's easier to manipulate the voting. And some of the uh, film campaigns for the Golden Globes have, have uh, been accused of, of using underhanded uh, strategies to try and win. I think that, you know, when you look at the different award shows, there, there, there's no perfect formula. It seems like, 
you know, the, the Golden Globes seem to be more the hipper, fun uh, award show where they're, you know, they're going to booze it up and get roasted. And, That's you know, it's going to be that kind of experience. And they want it to kind of present it that way. It's a little looser. Um, and they take more chances on their nominees and, and how they look at the nominations. And then the Oscars are tend to be looked at as just too conservative and out of touch with their with with a lot of the base of, of the entertainment industry. And it tends to be a lot of these older retiree Academy members and and they want fresh blood. And so, you know, you see on both levels of these awards that there are situations where people are critical of the process and critical of what's happening. And certainly in this time of inclusion and movements toward, uh, you know, diversifying these, the, the members of these various associations, you, you want to, you know, make, include more people of color and, and, and have that diversity. And I think that's on the table and they're aware of it, but you know, when you get that kind of article where even in 2021, there's not one single it's ridiculous. Uh, uh, black person in the entire Hollywood foreign press. I mean, that's just, it's embarrassing. It, it really, it's just sad. I mean, you know, does that mean that all of Sub-Saharan Africa is, is not even represented in, in as a foreign press? Are the, all the European um, countries with, with high levels of diversity, n- nobody has a, a person of color or African or African background in, in their press corps? Is that, I mean, is that basically what, your understanding of this is? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. And it's, but you know, whatever it is, it shows like these shows are popularity contests uh, contests, and they're marketing uh, events. And that's great. And that's what film's all about, marketing. And if you're nominated for a Golden Globe, nominated for an Oscar, that means a large percent of people are going to start going to the theater to see your film. And, you know, like Roger Ebert's Thumbs Up with Gene Siskel was, these are marketing things. And we understand this is interesting about marketing. And that's the amazing thing that they didn't think about how what a disaster of branding this is not to do this, even if it's superficial, a lot of the a lot of the changes like Hollywood, they're just like, oh my God, how many black actors can we nominate or you know, all these things they do to say, hey, look what we did. And it's superficial, like, you know, actually give people the opportunity, a black screenwriter to write a story that relates to black culture. And now it's happening. I mean, this year there's an explosion of it because Hollywood finally realized, A, it's terrible branding and B, people go to the films because they're well made and it actually attracts a very broad cross-section of people, which guess what? Means money. So it's they, they took a long time to figure it out, but they figured it out. We should just chat about that briefly. And I'd love to do a show with you about films that never were nominated and then could it should have been nominated and chat about a couple of films like that. That'd be really nice. And maybe some some of the worst winners kind of system. Oh, there's a couple of those. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, you know, I think it's good that we um, touched on that. And there's certainly a lot more uh, room for discussion on that. But, you know, moving forward to what our show is about and the core value of our show to our listener core values. Is, uh, is really it's about the films. So let's open it up. Uh, today, we're looking at two films that uh, were both in the running for a Best Picture, and neither one of them won in the Best Picture category, although they did win in other categories. And we're going to start with Don's selection. So Don, do you want to introduce your film? Well, yeah, actually, so my film, I don't think won anything. It was nominated for actor. The actress, didn't she? Kate no. Mulligan, Mulligan won something, I thought. No, she didn't. She was nominated. Oh, I thought she did win. Okay. No. So yeah, so Promising Young Woman is the film that I'm um, focusing on, and uh, it was nominated for Best Picture, and you know I think they had in the comedy category, 
And it's weird. It's one thing that, anyway, so this film is called Promising Young Woman. And it is directed by Emerald Fennell, who actually is much better known for her acting career. She's been in a number of shows. Her most recent uh, success has been, she's been playing Camilla Parker Bowles in The Queen, when The Queen, everyone's watching that. And then it's uh, produced by Margie, uh, Margot Robbie, who's been in many things. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street, I, Tonya, she's been Bombshell. So she's a person that's up there. She's a producer here. And it stars, as you said, uh, Casey Mulligan. And um, so it's, what I, this is really interesting, you know, in terms of lack of representation, this is not, there's, there's no black filmmakers. There's a couple of black characters, but they're not. This is, this is much more about a woman's perception about men. And it's, it's about a young, young, a young woman who has had a friend that died and we're, we don't really know why in the beginning of the film, but she goes to bars regularly pretending that she's drunk and lets men take them home. And then right when, and every single time they're always saying the same thing, I'm a good guy, I'm a good guy. And hey, you want another drink? And they're always trying to get her drunk and they're always in this situation and then they wanna have sex with her. And you know, she's a beautiful blonde and they're like, oh, I'm a good guy. And then as soon as they start doing that, she just sits up and says, what are you doing? And then that, so the opening of this film, I was just absolutely blown away by it. Like it was such an interesting premise of, you know, because you're seeing this woman and there's the, the opening scene we see, there's all these guys and they're saying, you know, they're talking, there's three guys talking to each other and they're looking at her and they're saying, they put themselves in danger. She's kind of hot. This is just asking for it. Look at that leaving her around for anyone to pick her up. They're making all these remarks like she's just this thing to have sex with. And, and they're all these nice, they're talking to each other like they're good guys and other guys do terrible things to her. One of them takes her home and then he gives her more to drink. And then he, you know, he's trying to get to have sex with her. And as soon as he's doing that, he's taking her, her underwear off. She sits up and she looks at him and it's, this is where it turns into sort of a horror. And she says, what are you doing? And the guy is totally freaked out. And, um, and then the whole thing switches. And then she says, you know, and, and that, that's, a, that's the thing about this woman, she's doing these things. That's the opening premise. So the thing that I find so fascinating about this film, it's so hard to categorize. So they call this film a comedy thriller. Some people call it a horror. Some people call it a drama. And there's little bit of, ele- there's definitely little comic scenes in it. You know, as and this is a film I would would not want to reveal how it turns out because it really kind of takes away the the gravitas of the film. But you know, I was kind of in the middle of it, like, yeah, you know, it's okay. And I'm I'm this film's all right, and there's there's parts that I enjoyed very much. Um, but the way it evolved and the way it ended, I was uh, I watched it a second time the next day because I was wasn't sure that if I understood it. And for me to see a film that I don't really get and I'm really confused by and I want to see again is for me you know just a total gem so I was really you know it's an up and down thing I think the script's a little bit inconsistent in parts but um I think and I think there, she's trying really hard the, the the director um uh uh Emerald Fennell wrote it as well I think she was also nominated for screenplay uh for the Globes and um and I think she really like the other film we're talking about Aaron Sorkin is a master script writer and he understands plot points and he just takes you and you're never left hanging anywhere. And he's, he knows exactly, he, he understands the, the beats and, and scripts perfectly. And I think uh, Ms. Fennell's still learning it, but a boy, does she open well and close well. And there's some inconsistency in the middle, but 
I was actually okay with the inconsistency um, in the end. I saw this film as imperfect, a, a strong film. The premise is, you know, it's an upsetting kind of premise. You know, I looked at it as kind of like a revenge flick. You know what I mean? It was, it had a, like a strong element of uh, society has been in the wrong either to me or somebody close in my life. And I have, de I'm dedicating myself to, you know, revenging this wrongness by attacking the, at the source of this, you know? And so I, I you know, I, I saw that as like a, a driving motivation for the character and, and that was consistent, I think. And there were times where the character is battling with herself to try and walk away from this situation, finding kind of substituting another emotion like happiness and fulfillment through relationships and, and things of that nature. So that was kind of balanced in there as well. Um, I had a lot of issues with the ending. Uh, I didn't, I thought that uh, there was, there was a major flaw in how they designed the ending of the film. And like you said, I don't want to go into the details of it, but I'll just say it didn't make sense to me entirely. And I didn't watch it again because I thought it was just flawed. Uh, it didn't, I didn't need to see it again to understand that it still was not going to make sense to me. In regards to the, to the design of the ending, a sensible, rational logic to the storyline, not necessarily the characters, motivations or anything like that, but in, in there, and that's where I kind of saw a little bit of, a flaw and that and that's part of why i felt that you know there was a lot of imperfections and the film you know is well reviewed it was popular and you know it's, and there is some very very strong moments in that film with just driven intensity that really is the foundation for for the for the film's i think impact on the viewers and so you know in that sense i think it's a strong film that the content is, is is very powerful and i thought the characters were very good i particularly liked the parents and i liked how they shot the house that she was raised in i thought that was you know a very interesting interpretation of her childhood and how she was raised and 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 there was a, there was a quirkiness in 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 how you looked at the the symbolism of the house like the, the pink carpet in the in the living room and, you know, there, there was, it was, there was a sterileness to it. And I thought that was, I thought I found that fascinating. I, I really, the scenes around her home in the house, I, I actually really enjoyed just kind of un, unpeeling a little bit as I, as I was watching the, the scenes play out. Well, so you're talking about the, the, the color pal and the, and the house. And it's that, so that one thing I just loved was how the thing was shot. It's all in like baby blues and pinks and pastels. The, the coffee shop she works at, she's got all these pastries, everything's pink and blue. All the clothes she wears has little pink flowers on it. And the, 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 the palette, the color palette, um, and it's by, I, certainly I didn't know, I'm interested in looking at his other films. He's a, he's, a, he's a European guy, Benjamin Krashun. I've never seen anything by him before. But the palette is just so like sweet and innocent and like girly. It's a girlish palette. And it's like, it's all innocent and fun. And that's one of the things I absolutely love about this film is like, you know, the character, the promising young woman played by Carrie Mulligan and people might know Carrie Mulligan. She was, she was Daisy and Gatsby. Um, she's been in a number of things the last few years and Mudbound a couple of years ago. So she's a pretty accomplished actress. And she plays this lovely, sweet thing that everyone looks at as like, oh, isn't she pretty? And she has a darkness to her that is just unfathomable. And she's, you know, her, her friend was basically sexually assaulted 
and she killed herself because of it. And I'm not destroying the plot knowing that. And she wants, as you said, she wants revenge and she wants these people to have justice. She wants justice. And everyone, even there's a scene where she visits the mother um, of the girl that died. And um, she even says, you know, you let it go, you gotta move on. And she's like, why? You know, all these people, you know, this is wrong. And there's this feeling of like, oh, she's a bit of a psycho. She's a little bit crazy. And that's how she's presented in the beginning. And when the guys, when she does this whole reveal that I'm not drunk and there's a pretty funny scene with the guy that played McLovin from uh, Superbad. Yeah. He's this crazy cokehead. And then he's just like, hi. And then he, he turns on her and does this whole thing about freaking out, which is kind of funny. There's humor in it. Anyway, getting back to what you're saying is like, this, it all rang untrue. That's what I was so fascinated by because there's like these comic moments and then it goes back to revenge then it goes back to drama and it just keeps moving from genre to genre. And I was kind of fascinated how, you know, she didn't follow rules and she kept breaking rules and she threw me off constantly. That's why um, I watched it again. And I was just fascinated by she's getting revenge. And then in the middle, it's like she's sort of convinced, ah, you know, don't get the revenge anymore. It's okay. And she's got this really complicated revenge plot that she's got going. And she's like, okay, I'll give it up. And then suddenly something happens. And she's like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going with this. And I think like, for example, where it's a little bit wooden, there's a moment where she meets the, um, the, the dean of the school that she left. And this dean, who's a woman, didn't take action when her friend was basically suicidal and she was sexually assaulted. And the woman said, you know, I don't want to ruin young men's lives, et cetera, et cetera. And this stuff seemed very much to me like it was a, like a political spin on like the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. It, it sounded a lot like they were parroting all the stuff that we were talking about, the, the Kavanaugh hearings, which I think were really important, you know, whether he sexually assaulted somebody that was passed out or not. And it seemed, but it seemed a little bit like heavy handed how she was doing that. Um, yeah, I, I, my thing for that was Stan, uh, Stanford student yeah. who, who sexually assaulted a girl. And then the judge was like, I, well, I don't want to ruin his, his career. And, yeah. you know, and that, that, so your Kavanaugh was my Stanford, you know? Yeah. So that and was, it was a little bit heavy handed, but I was like, yeah, okay. I don't know. Probably it's not far off. <laughs> The, the interesting thing is when she leaves that pastel world and she's going into these other worlds where the men, the men's houses or the men's apartments and things, you know, you see this, this, you know, the, the rustic darkness of these other places, you know what oh. I mean? It's very, it's, it's, it's very polarizing where she lives and her comforts, these dens that she enters yeah. in these dangerous places. And, and it's, it's very, you know, there's a, there's a huge contrast in, in how yeah. those were shot. It's almost like a, a house with many, many different rooms, you know, she's entering in, into these rooms and, and what's going to happen. And that, it did have kind of a horror vibe to it on a certain level, because, you know, especially the way she's, her personality just so abruptly changes when she does the trap on the, the sobriety thing, yeah. because, you know, you, you kind of see this, like, almost like this possession of, yeah. Uh, of of difference you know and it and it really does kind of remind you of some of those films where you know you see this you know horror possession kind of um moment and i that's what i think is so fascinating about it because everybody in the story including her parents and the mother of the girl that was killed were like you gotta let it go and she's talked about like she's a psychotic and, and you think about it it's like wait a second her best friend killed herself because she was sexually assaulted and no one did anything about it. 
and she wants justice. And you think that makes her crazy. And everyone talks about her like she's crazy. And, and she, you know, this is this has happened years before and she won't let it go. And I was fascinated by the portrayal of this character. I really hope she gets nominated for the Oscars. So it'll, she'll get hype on it. And when you talked about the, the, the men's places, she also goes to this, this stag party in this like lodge. And exactly, as soon as she, and it's, and it's presented, she walks into the place, it's all, it's like a log cabin. It's big. It's rustic, it's very rustic. rustic. And it's full of guys that are just pumped up and drunk. And you're like, that's it. And for, you know, people think, oh, my stag party's gonna be a lot of fun. We look at it from her perspective. It's just like, oh, this is a place there as a woman, you potentially can get raped. And uh, the way it's, it, she comes into it and she takes control of the situation, but it's like a little bit scary. Right, and, she's entering uh, like a combat zone. You know? Yeah, she's in trouble going and, and we're thinking, don't go into this place. And and it's just a bunch of guys having fun. We definitely know people that have done that. But it's that's what I liked about it. And one other thing I wanted to point out is that when she comes home, her parents are always they're still treating her like she's like 18. Are you OK? And they're not they just don't know what to do with her because she's been so traumatized. And then she they come home right now one night and they're watching on the TV this film, it's called Night of the Hunter, and it's got Robert Mitchum in it, it's got Charles Lawton film, and it's this really interesting revenge film. It's totally thematically in line with the film we're watching, and it's a cult film, and it's just beautifully shot with really crazy sets and underwater insanity, and, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Robert Mitchum plays the most amazing psychotic character in it, and th th we just see the TV for like 10, 10 seconds. But I was watching this like, wow, they threw this film in here. And then, oh, OK, they're kind of saying that she's kind of like Robert Mitchum. And I was I, I love that detail. I was thinking that's uh, well done. So it's a film I actually want to see again. That's how much I liked it. Yeah, I can see you, the excitement as you speak about it. There's definitely, you know, you, you're jazzed up about this film. Jazzed up. Yeah, it didn't do it. I mean, it was I, I thought it had its it's you know, it had its strong points and it's messaging and, but it wasn't, you know, it's not, it's not my thing. You know, I thought there were moments that of, of amazing parts to this film, but as I said, it, it's an imperfect film. And another thing I kind of reflected on is, you know, as we watch the films that we've been watching over the past 50 years or 55, 60 years, and then we see these films now, it's just, sometimes I feel like, you know, what people appreciate back then and what people are appreciating now, there's, there's such a different, level in how they're applying appreciation to films because you know i feel like th there's a lot of acceptance of incompleteness now that you know previously it wouldn't be accepted it would be, be like well you know there it was a strong message but there was moments that you could see there was parts of this film that were flawed and that weakened the film but now i think people they look at these things and they and they gravitate gravitate toward amazing moments in the film and as you have said previously, if you have three good scenes, uh, you, I think you you said that was a, a Roger Ebert quote. Ebert that, you know, you have a good film, and I think in this film that I felt I, I thought about that a little bit as as I watched this, going, okay, I guess this is a good film, but I wasn't throwing it up there at the level that you're appreciating it. Well, it's interesting you say that because you know, last few films we've watched, I've really enjoyed you know our progression through the '70s and early '80s, and. I was pretty disappointed by Victoria. I thought it was a pretty incomplete film. Stuntman, I think you, you know, it's a, there's incomplete aspects yeah. to it. I didn't think Victor Victoria was particularly good either, so. No, it's, I don't know. I don't know if it's, 
obviously the times are very different and there's different expectations for films made. I mean, we were looking last film we were looking at was made in 83. So we've, we've jumped ahead, you know, almost 40 years. So the, the sensibilities are different, but that's another great show to, to explore. We should yeah, see. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to our second film uh, today. We're going to look at a historical bioptic called The Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, who is a, a master screenwriter. And uh, this is his second attempt at directing. I believe his first was uh, Molly's Game. Uh, and oh, so this gambling. is about gambling. And another true story. He likes his historical, you know. Yep. And this one is very much uh, set in, uh, it's, well, it's Chicago, 1968 Democratic National Convention, where we have a... Um, a protest movement um, that's really tired of Vietnam War. And there's there's kind of a, a perfect storm of all these different groups meeting in Chicago to demonstrate against the war and using the Democratic National Convention as kind of the backdrop to being publicized in their protesting demonstration. And Richard Daly, the mayor of Chicago, is not interested in this happening at all and is per perfectly happy having his police be extremely confrontational and aggressive against these demonstrators. And what ends up happening is we and we see a lot of violence and um, physicality by the police and the demonstrators responding. And eventually some of the leaders of the different groups that were there are arrested and, and put on, tr on trial. And the trial is really, uh, once the election's over and Nixon is elected, he is the driving force to wanting leaders of these various peace demonstration groups or, or anti-war groups. He wants them tried a big show trial in federal court. And so that's kind of the driving vibe of this movie is that these guys are going to be put on kind of this big show trial uh, in federal court. And, you know, the it's an all-star ensemble cast. They have a very strong cast for this movie. Uh, some of the featured players, Yahya Abdul-Mateen plays Bobby Seale, the, the head of the uh, Black Panthers. Uh, Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman, uh, the head of the Yippie Party. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is one of the, uh, the main prosecutors. Michael Keaton has a small but powerful role. Uh, Frank uh, Langella, the judge, uh, Hoffman, Judge Hoffman, and um, John Carroll Lynch, who is, is a, a very uh, strong supporting actor who's been in a lot of different things. I think he was most known, I think, as Drew Carey's brother in the Drew Carey show. I don't know. But he he plays uh, David Dellinger. And that's one, one of the jokes in the, in the, in the movie is yeah. it's not Dellinger, it's Dellinger. Yeah. And then Eddie Redmayne plays um, Tom Hayden. So there's, um, and then also there's some other, uh, the, one of the lawyers, Mark Rylance, who is a very esteemed British actor who played, uh, he was in Ready Player One as the, the, the guy who invented the, the virtual world. We see a good interaction. You know, any Aaron Sorkin screenplay is going to have just amazing dialogue and fast-paced conversations and dialogues. And so, you know, you get the full Aaron Sorkin screenplay experience. Uh, I think uh, Sasha Baron Cohen might have won the uh, the Best Supporting Actor role for this. I he think. did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's good. I mean, he's good in this. Uh, it's a strong, it's a well-written character. He's very strong. And he's perfect for it. 
and he, yeah, and he played the he played him very well. And I, you know, I liked the judge. I thought the judge was very good because the judge, the federal court judge, he was like a million years old. He was losing his mind. He was clearly biased against them. He would not, you know, every objection by the prosecution was sustained and. He, you know, he, at one point he put the leader of the Black Panther guy in chains and tied up in the in the courtroom, and uh, you know, so you, this it's it's an opportunity for seven defendants to really bring attention to the injustice of the Vietnam War and to use the trial as a um, as a way of of sending a message to people saying this is you know it's 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 too much and this is you know this is what's happening it's a political trial against us. And you, and you see a lot of connections to what really happened. But in fact, from what I read, the, the trial was actually much more clownish than the actual film showed it to be. So there was a lot more behavior that, that tried to discredit the whole process of this trial. And uh, the judge was very liberal in his uh, contempt of court rulings against the, both the defendants and their lawyers. And, you know, but there's a strong message that you get from this because they not only do they show play the the trial with what was happening in the demonstrations which were months before because the trial happened um you know a year a year or so later i guess and you see the um aggressive behavior of the police force you see the the federal government kind of stalking and and following these guys and harassing them and there's even implications that the, their their phones and their offices of the of the defendants uh, were bugged because they mentioned a couple of jurors at one point that were on their side. And then the next, then the next scene, you see that these jurors are removed because there's the government creates um, false threats against those jurors families and, and and attributing them to the black Panthers. And, and it was clearly too coincidental that it would happen right after they mentioned that these two jurors seem to be a little more uh, pro defendant. You you get a sense that it was oh, not a, a fair government at that time. That they were definitely you know Nixon and, and his Justice Department was were using their resources against these these demonstrators and these anti war people and whoever that they you know whatever enemies that they were declaring. And so the film really captures that. You get that sense of the injustice of the Nixon administration and how they were using um, you know the resources to. To basically violate our own uh, laws and constitutional protections of our of our citizens, and you know, it, it it connected a lot to maybe how people felt about Trump and the Trump administration, and so there was a lot of that connection you could see in in the film, and you know, and it was probably the intention. It was intentional, the timing of the film after Trump is leaving to release the film. You know, there was a lot of connections to that time and this time, you know. And and the scary thing is, is that, you know, when we see demonstrations that were most recent, it was actually on the other side of the aisle. It was an alt-right January 6th against the Capitol. And it, we're, we're looking at a liberal administration or a Democratic administration dealing with the fallout of that. And so, you know, it's it, it's it's almost like a bizarre world mirror opposite kind of situation that we see from 68 into what we're seeing in 2021. And so I kind of appreciated that as well, because it would be interesting to see there's going to be some films about January 6th, and it's going to be interesting to see how those play out compared to a film like this that was coming from a a much different angle. Yeah. I mean, man, you've said so many things there. Like I, I never thought about the January 6th film. I just want to see, 
you know, like uh, I want to, I want to know who's going to play the guy with the horns on his head. And that, that, that the guy the, with the, the was it the QAnon shaman? <laughs> yeah, the shaman. And then uh, who's going to play the guy with the feet on the desk? That could yeah, be Hanks. Yeah, Hanks, yeah. Hanks could nail that role. Yeah. No, I think um, it's going to be Sam Rockwell. That's gonna be- oh, Sam Rockwell would be good there too. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so that's the interesting thing about this film, and when you have these films that you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm older. And so I, I, I wasn't, a, you know, old, I didn't remember this. I was like four when the, the, the 68 demonstrations happened. So I have no recollection of it, but I certainly, you know, was quite aware of it when I was doing, you know, did history and stuff and learned about what had happened. That, that, and that's the problem with films like this or not the problem. I'm really glad that, that lots of people, younger people are going to watch it because it's got Sasha Baron. And by the way, Sasha Baron Cohen won for Borat didn't win for this. He was nominated for this. So I, I just checked and made, we made a mistake. Really for Borat. Borat's a great film. I'm, I'm, ba- I'm back in Borat. But um, uh, so I'm really glad that there's so people are going to think and look. My problem is they, they and as you said, like Sorkin, he writes a really good story and he knows exactly how to hit beats and how to manipulate us and, and totally to be fascinated by the Abby Hoffman character played by Sasha Baron Cohen. And, and, and he makes him sort of the main guy. He creates this head to head battle between him and Tom Hayden, who were probably the two, you know, the most powerful of the guys that came to demonstrate. And a lot of that is inflated. I, when I was watching this, like, well, I didn't realize Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman, Hoffman hated each other so much. And then when I read about it, they, they didn't say a lot of the things they said. Like one thing, Abby Hoffman, if Tom Hayden says to Abby Hoffman, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're the kind of person that everyone's going to remember. And you're just a big joke. And, and you, you make fun of all these important things. And it's, it's a good line, but it's not true. And, and Hayden and Hoffman, Obviously, they came from different point of view. Hayden was a much more conservative guy, and he really wanted, you know, he entered politics. He was a, he was a congressman for I don't know how many years, like 20 Although, years. You know, you're, you're bringing up another point is that, in fact, Hayden was a, a, a more volatile than how he's played in this as well. Yeah. I mean, he's he was yeah. definitely, you know, the thing where there'll be blood in the streets. That, that was not a unique thing no. for him to say. He had said, you know, he has used that energy in that style of speaking before he was he could be a very hot tempered guy yeah and there's a scene in the in the in the film where the judge says you know mr hayden you're the kind of guy that could do very well and you know mr hoffman clearly is you know a, you know he's not worth the time and none of that was said but i realize that Sir, sirkin does it for a reason and he, you know he, he takes us down a road and it's like you know he he wrote uh, the social network and the social network is a very well-made film and you know Finch is the director and the script is so tight but he fictionalizes you know he, he creates all these characters that and then afterwards you're wondering did all these things happen and then some there's there's a truth to them and there's a truth to this and he's definitely expressing it's based it's based on it's on based on but then like the ending of the trial is you know Tom Hayden I think reading all the names of all the uh, Americans it wasn't Hayden it was no no it just that didn't happen no. Uh, yeah, it didn't happen. So he read all the names at the, at the point. It was like 47,000 people had died in Vietnam in combat, Americans. And um, he read the list. And uh, that it happened. they did read the names, but it wasn't Hayden. And it was the middle of the trial. And they also the name, re- read names of, of the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong that died as well. Yeah. And so it's an idea, but they use it for this like, you know, big climax moment where they, he, he, you know, the judge says, hey, you better have a really tight closing statement. And then he looks at him and he says, okay, here you go. And he just reads 
47,000 names. And-, and, and it's, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, the premise here is this is a movie for entertaining purposes. It's not a documentary. It's, well, we do learn. And it's like a lot of people don't know. Like a lot of my students don't know what the demonstrations of 68 were. Yeah. And it's such a significant moment in history because we have to remember that, you know, Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King were, were killed like three months before this. And those, those two people represented such hope for the country, a direction, and then they're assassinated. And then the Democratic Party was in an incredible disarray. Johnson wasn't gonna run again. And the country was just, it just spun from this direction of, of real hope. And, you know, it's kind of represented, I love the character played by, it's a- Ramsey Clark. Yeah, Ramsey Clark by Keaton. I thought, and it's fictionalized as well. And a lot of the stuff didn't happen, but he represented the previous administration, the Johnsons, and he represented tolerance and all these kinds of ideas. The truth is actually he prosecuted uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock and a couple other people and something called the Boston Five tri- trial for, for draft card burning. So it oh, wasn't- and, and his career afterwards, he, 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 defend, he was uh, Muammar Gaddafi's lawyer. He was Saddam Hussein's lawyer. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Milinovic or whatever, Salab, whatever that guy in uh, Serbia. Yeah. Oh, Serbia. Ramsey Clark was taking anybody. You know, yeah. I mean, he took every bad, evil villain. The next yeah, but he, and he was, he was portrayed as this guy's like, you know, I mean, the idea of, of the lawyers in this trial bringing the former attorney general of the country into the trial, and then the, the judge is like, you can't do this. And the attorney general says, I'm going to speak anyway. And it's just like, wow, it's so great. It's, and it's a great moment, but none of it happens. And, and well, I mean, he, did, he did testify at that trial, and he did do it without the jury there. And the mm-hmm. judge did determine that he wasn't going to allow the, the testimony yeah. to go in front of the jury. I mean, yeah. all that part that, you know, he didn't say what he said in the movie, but, the, you know, the judge was definitely slanted. And, and when you think about it, it's all politically motivated because the Johnson administration, the Nixon administration, the, the antipathy, the antipathy between those two was, was very strong. And this is interesting in terms of, as you said, the connection between our times now going through Trump and, and what he represented as the psychology of a country and Nixon, who actually it's just sad that he's compared to, to Trump because he actually had a decent foreign policy. He had some decent ideas, but his paranoia and his his you know inability to to you know compromise um, destroyed him. I mean, he actually what I mean he wasn't nearly nothing like Trump. Um, oh, I mean, look, you know, I think he was worse than Trump personally. Trump is oh, okay. Well, know, like as that. a historian, I, I'm oh. going to tell you that Nixon, you know, I mean, like the whole secret bombing the Laos thing and Bro. I mean there was just some horrible yeah, he, was, he was just I mean and he knew he was a smart guy and he knew what he was doing Trump, Trump was just played you know uh you know there's a lot of a lot of strings attached to him and he cut the strings sometimes and sometimes he let the strings and he did the dance but he didn't really know what he was doing you know I mean and Nixon totally calculating smart guy abused the system completely understood you know what he was doing and a completely, you know, completely different situation in my opinion. And that, and that, much worse. And much worse. Yeah, and that that point of view is definitely brought across in the film about how his doctrine is actually very much like uh, Mayor Daly's. That you know, if you aren't going to do you 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 beatniks, you yippies. So the one character that isn't very developed, and he's kind of a comic relief guy, is Jerry the Jerry Rubin character, played by Jeremy Strong. And I don't know that actor. 
and so he's the uh, so like you know the, the the big players of the thing were Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, and I guess David Dellinger, and they make Rubin kind of a comic relief guy. So he's basically entrapped by a hot undercover policewoman, and FBI. then she's like, FBI. Sorry, FBI. And then she's like, hey, I, you know, I love you. And this is, you know, he's kind of an odd looking goofy guy. And he's like, this is great. And he has like a three day affair with her. And we're not really sure what goes on, if it's anything. But then when he finds out she's an FBI agent, he's like, he doesn't really care about the politics of it. he's like, but I, I really like you. Can we still hang I out? We, kind I of thought stuff? we had something. I thought we had something. And it's it's pretty funny. I mean, it's I don't they, did, they make him kind of like the goofy clown. Well, yeah but it's whatever and and as as we talk about the the reality of the trial they didn't do it like you know the they did uh reuben and and hoffman did come in and judge's robes for one day and they do that in the film and it's great it's very funny and there's a lot of remarks that hoffman made because the judge's name is hoffman abby hoffman and hoffman and he made a lot of jokes uh and he, he drove the judge crazy and um but he once he brought the, the Vietnamese flag in and he had there was a tug of war, apparently the the, the court, uh, da, 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 you know, the, 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 the police in the, in the court tried to uh, t- there was a tug of war going on between us, which I thought would have been the funniest scene. But they they skipped a lot of the of the, the craziness that was actually going on. They just uh, Sorkin decided not. Yeah. to. One of the interesting subplots, too, was the Fred Hampton assassination, you know, the, the local Black Panther leader of Chicago who was, you know, trying to support Bobby Seale, the national leader. And at one point during the film, you, um, you know, it, it, there's a raid on his house and he's assassinated. Um, he's shot in the shoulder and then he's shot in the head. And, and it was clear to a lot of people that when he was shot in his shooting shoulder, that he wasn't going to be able to defend himself anymore. But yet later he's he shot in the head and, and killed. And, uh, you know, investigations, uh, following this indicated that this was an assassination. In fact, totally. you know, there was a, a, a civil case and the police, the, the government, the city, the police and the federal government all had to pay uh, to the, his estate, uh, you know, millions of dollars because of, of that. Which also uh, leads to the, another film that's out now, which is Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a pretty solid film. Um, and it's it's all about Fred Hampton in Chicago. And it's, uh, it's a pretty fascinating story. And then my, when you... Fred Hampton, he was the leader of the Chicago trap chapter of the Black Panthers. He was 21 years old and he was assassinated in his apartment. They drugged him beforehand. He didn't have a, he, there was no defense. There was, he wasn't shooting anybody. It was a, I, that's going to. Pre-dawn raid kind of thing. It was a terrible, terrible thing. So that's a great film as well. And I'm, I'm wondering, maybe that'll be up in our next, next, uh, next show. Um, that'll probably be nominated. We're going to find out this uh, this Sunday. We're going to find out what the nominations are. Anyway, so you know this. So there's a lot of history in this film that is, is very interesting to kind of analyze side by side with the fictional telling. And it's a it's a well done movie. It's you know it's solid, um, and it definitely if you're interested in this type of this type of historical relevance, then it's it's a, it's definitely a movie you want to see because you learn a lot uh, even in. It's well, and like I said, you know, Sorkin is an amazing screenwriter and he directs, it's a solid direction and the, and the ensemble cast pretty much around, um, there, I didn't see a really a weak performance in this, in this I agree. Uh, movie. So, and you know, something you were using the word imperfect earlier and I agree promising young woman is imperfect and 
I, I kind I guess maybe I gravitate more to films that have problems and are, you know, a little bit like we, I did a Giri Ratha God a while ago and it's, there's definitely an imperfect film. Uh, so he won, I'm a member of this group, the final, I, I do, I write my own scripts and one day, hopefully we're talking about one of my films. And so Final Cut, which is the main program that most people use, they just had their awards like two weeks ago. Sorkin won for best script in it. It's kind of a small group of people, but everyone's talking about screenwriting. Uh, so Sasha Baron Cohen was, you know, it's a Zoom thing. And he, he congratulated Sorkin on winning the award. And he said that he'd called Sorkin many times while before they were shooting and he'd say, hey, how about this line? How about this line? Can I add this in? Sorkin said he always listened, but rejected everything. And then Baron Cohen eventually realized he was right to reject everything because as it was, it was perfect. I, I really question this idea of perfect. I'm not saying he's not a very good screenwriter. Obviously he's a great, this idea that I like the looseness and the loose the, and the idea of it all, you know, working perfectly is something I'm a little bit wary of sometimes, but that's definitely what this film is. You know, and I think maybe that's not exactly what he's talking about. I think also he's talking about this, the synchronization of the energy, you know, when, you know, when, somebody like Sorkin is, is writing such a tight screenplay, he is working with flow and energy in such a pinpoint way that you know he's seeing it in this way. And so he listened probably to Cohen and, and Cohen didn't quite sync with the energy that Sorkin wanted to, to have in this movie. And so he, he just, because, you know, he's looking at it in a very attached away and plus you know sorkin that's sorkin's known for you know it, it, this is the script you know oh, totally so. but borat's subsequent movie is a perfect film as well yeah you know i'm hoping that i'll never see that so <laughs> <laughs> anyway all right well i think we touched on some very good things we talked a little bit about the selection process of the of the uh, golden globes and the oscars we talked about these movies uh, which are contemporary movies. And, you know, there's a lot of analysis out there, but, you know, the way we do it, um, you know, it's still kind of in, in the, the realm of how we look at our older films as well. And I liked, I liked, I kind of liked how we did touch on some comparisons and we looked at, you know, the, the lenses of the, of the history of some of the movies that we've looked at before first, how people are looking at movies now. And uh, overall, you know, these were two strong films in, in their different energies. And I liked, um, this process of how we went through this. And I think you're right. We're probably going to be exploring this some more as we get further into the award season. And Ben, I want to say, I really have enjoyed, you know, we've done, I don't know what we're at 15 now. I'm not really sure, but ballpark. You're really starting to talk a lot more about technical stuff and talking about the color palettes and stuff. And like beginning, you weren't doing that stuff at all. And now you're like digging into the, into all that stuff. So well, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. So <laughs> I think it's going well. One day it'll, it'll be, it's, it's going well. Great. All right. Well, listen, good talking to Don and we will see everybody next time on cinema around the corner. See you later.